Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 401 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Lawrence Sale speaks with Anne Morgan about the importance of fellow periods, the difficult art of writing about and for people you know, the difference between a poem and a description, and being drunk on the power and enjoyment of words. Lawrence Sale is a British writer and poet with a career spanning more than four decades. In addition to having published 13 poetry collections and edited numerous anthologies, he has been involved with many of the UK's most prestigious literary organisations, among them the Royal Society of Literature and the Arvin Foundation, which he chaired. It was a pleasure for me to sit down with him in the basement kitchen of his Exeter home and hear about his work. So, Lawrence, where did writing start for you? Well, I suppose there are multiple answers to that, but I do remember a moment when I was about ten when I was hiding under my mother's baby grand piano at home in Exeter and for no particular reason at that point it suddenly struck me that it would be possible to be completely and almost permanently drunk on the power of words and the enjoyment of them. So I suppose insofar as I relate it to any given moment that would be it. Wow, drunk on the power of words, that's, that's a wonderful way of looking at it. What was it about poetry that drew you? Because you have written other things, but poetry is very much your, your métier, isn't it? It's your... Yes. Um, again, there are, there are plenty of answers to that. I mean, uh, partly my education, doing French and German, I therefore had the excitement and the luxury of access to German poetry and French poetry. And uh, I think I was particularly attracted quite early on to French poetry that build-up of a wonderful vocalic hum, which is, of course, one of the reasons why French is so difficult to set to music. And to sing, I have to say. Having attempted to do so, it's not easy to sing French. The vowels... Exactly. Oh. All those mutes that have to <laughs> unmute to themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even listening to something like Carmen, one's very aware of the operatic effect of that vowel structure. Well, poetry is memorable utterance. I suppose I belong to a generation, too, that we had to learn quite a lot of poetry at school. The dreaded conning by rote of people like Macefield and Kipling and so on. And the junior school I was at, the headmaster, with a striking demonstration of either sadism or generosity, whichever way you look at it, decided that you would learn all 150 psalms through the course of one year. And of course, he had the most powerful weapon known as Psalm 119, which goes on forever. And uh, he didn't tell us until we were uh, halfway through Psalm 118 that 119 would be chopped into manageable sections. But uh, that learning by heart, it's very interesting in a sense. I haven't come back to it, but I find that things that are not necessarily written down, but you're evolving in your mind and in a sense beginning to learn by heart, have a different kind of weight to them. Do you find that with your writing, that sometimes things lodge and hatch um, mm, yeah, I, I know what you mean, that there's something can germinate over yes. time and yeah, reappear in a slightly altered form. 
Yes, and, but also in a slightly developed form and not necessarily the form that it would have taken if you had rushed. It's a different kind of manoeuvre and a different kind of evolution sometimes. Oh. Um, I find, increasingly in fact, I find that keeping things in your head and having the confidence not to write them down immediately oh. uh, is an interesting way to work. Oh. I mean, your work spans four decades um, yes. and... It's very interesting reading through, there was a lovely retrospective that Blood Axe Books published in 2010, I think. Yes, that's right. Um, Waking yeah, Dreams. Waking yes. Dreams. Mm. And, and reading through the selections in that, seeing how the voice changes and how, but how certain concerns, certain ideas reappear. It's very much what, you, what you're saying, actually. You return, particularly on the theme of time, I think, is something that you return to quite a bit in its different forms, from poems that are very technical in terms of the changing of the clocks, you know, the, mm. the actual the nuts and bolts of time, mm. to wider reaching ideas of what time is, how it affects our relationship with life and with others. Yes, absolutely. So, someone once said, in the glorious three-quarter truth, um, there are only three subjects for poetry, time, love and death. <laughs> and of course the missing tetrarch is life. Um, but, yes, and of course it has to appear in various guises. You can't nakedly just go on banging on about time's winged chariot. <laughs> but it's always there, of course. It's very interesting, I think one effect of the Covid-19 business has been to make people reassess what is really valuable to them. And that is inevitably bound up with time. And I think that has brought perhaps a new attentiveness. It's certainly, we're very aware of time in the perspective of ecology and climate change and global warming. And in fact, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what effect in the medium term that has on people's writing. Absolutely. I mean, the pandemic for many writers I know was a real watershed. For Some, some people had to put aside projects because they felt yes. entirely irrelevant yes. or they couldn't see how on earth they could yes. have any connection with them anymore. Uh, for you, did it change your approach to writing, your connection to it? I don't know. I don't know because I have finished and published two books during the course of the last just over a year. And I always find after that that what follows is fallow ground, uh, not the wasteland. I think fallow ground is actually very important. Do you find that too? Absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I find, I mean, I often, because I'm quite a, a person who believes in discipline, probably slightly too much, I do force myself Join to keep club. writing. <laughs> and, but mostly yeah. what I produce during those yeah. times is, and then, you know, I'll, I'll produce rubbish for a yeah. lot of the time, yeah. and then suddenly something will just yes. emerge. Yes. Um, and I did, uh, yeah, I quite agree. And it doesn't even have to be rubbish. <laughs> In other words, I think it can be merely competent. But we all know when we're on song and when we're not. And mm. I mean, one of the things I find with writing poems is it's always worthwhile to say to oneself or to ask oneself, where does this poem actually begin? You know, is there an umbilical that needs cutting? Am I taking a run up to it? I think that um, it's clearing your your throat. Yes, yes. Um, Back to utterance, of course. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But the looming question, of course, for all of us, in a sense, is how do we change our lives in order to make some contribution? And what is the relation of our traditional or the traditional view of literature and writing to what is going on? Mm. Are we talking about accommodating this in the endless flexibility of writing? Or are we talking about putting down our pens and going outside? It's, it's a very complex question, I think. Mm. Do you have an answer to it? No. <laughs> <laughs>
No, but it's closing in on me, that question. I'm particularly and increasingly haunted by the business of refugees and the absolutely appalling sight of children caught up in this terrible adult vortex. But of course these things, I suppose part of the answer is these things are not exclusive. We can write and protest, we can write and crowdfund, whatever. But our priorities are very sharply and clearly marked at the moment. Yes. It has felt the last few years that these crises, one after another, yes, a real pitch of anxiety and something quite difficult to know how to relate to, actually. And mm. I find, with my work, yes. that I need time to think about things. There are brilliant things that get produced very quickly after the fact. That you think, wow, that's really captured that, or that's really caught that moment. Uh, there's no way that I could do that. Most of my writing deals with things that have happened some time ago, or stories some way in the past. Um, is that similar for uh, you? Very interesting. I find, I find exactly the same. And also that the immediate response, however well-intentioned, may not have the reflective perspective that only comes with... We're still talking about time, aren't we? <laughs> that comes with the passage of time. But we live in an age, don't we, where the instant view is what people are invited to conjure as soon as an event happens. And I think it's a big disadvantage. Apart from anything else, we all as human beings change our minds and change our perspectives and change our priorities. But I suppose also there has come a point at which you simply have to get on with it and decide, well, yes, I have digested that. I don't know whether you'd agree, but it's not something one can be entirely conscious and rational about, is it? It's, no. uh, you have to be aware of your own processes, but you can't rationalise everything. Yes, I think that's right. But certainly if I tell myself I'm setting out to write a particular sort of thing or a particular character, a particular, yes, yes. it dies, it's, it's flat on the page, it's yes. completely devoid of life. There has to be elasticity. Yes. I may have a sensation, a feeling of what something will be, but it, it morphs and has to develop. <laughs> yes, exactly. And isn't that part of the fun and part mm. of the adventure and part of the difficulty at all? Again, I, I find myself in complete agreement about that. It's, uh, it's also that an entirely rational, sort of rational and flat approach mm. is, is not only desiccated and possibly linguistically lifeless, but it actually doesn't allow room for the unexpected. Mm. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I find quite extraordinary with writing, that sometimes, for instance, a poem takes off and you think you know where it's going, but oh no, you don't. It becomes something quite other. One hopes for better rather than for worse, but it's, it sometimes goes a long way from that original impulse. How do you, commissions and dedications fit with that? Because a number of your poems are written for particular people. If you're setting out to write something for someone, I mean, does that limit? Because surely there must be a... I would worry that I would write something that might upset the person or that they may not like if I knew I was writing it for someone. How does that filter in? <laughs> yes, good question. I think the most important thing with commissions is to always be upfront about the possibility of failure. A poem isn't good because it's a commissioned poem. Although Auden rather nicely said, all poems are commissioned by their writers... Which I rather like. Yeah. Um, Self-commissioning, if, if, and a lot of the ones, of the poems that you're talking about, are indeed self-commissioned and or perhaps written for the occasion of a birthday. And of course, what is a birthday poem about? Time. So it opens out beyond the particular. I have, in the last two years, had a particularly acute instance of exactly what you're talking about. One of my oldest and closest friends I was staying with 
and I and his wife found him on his kitchen floor, uh, having had a, a very bad stroke. And since that time, he can't speak, he's incontinent, he can't stand, and so on. This seemed quite impermissible to write about. But I did in the end, a year and a half later, it became important to write uh, about him, and indeed for him. And that was extremely difficult to do, because you have to be truthful, but there's no excuse for colonising disaster when it's either personal or political. So I came up with a version, showed it to his family, and very rarely did sort of alter things in the light of comments they made. And he has had it read to him, and apparently was very pleased. But that's certainly very difficult. The other acute difficulty I remember writing a poem was a poem called Father to Son, which is about my son Matthew, who's now in the 14th year of his second kidney transplant. I wrote a poem in the wake of a particular one of many hospital stays of his in London at the Shaftesbury Hospital, which is now a rather smart boutique hotel and was originally a nunnery, where the penance for the nuns was to go up the stairs, plenty of them, on their knees. But I didn't publish that for, I don't know, 15 years. And again, I know Matthew prizes that poem. But these are difficult matters, and I think you just have to be as honest as you can about your motive and about your success in writing a poem about it, not just describing it. Mm. Now that's a very interesting distinction. Can we look into that a bit? What is the difference between a poem and a description? Well, a description... <laughs> oh, what a question to set me. Uh, <laughs> uh, a description, I think, is what it says on the tin, uh, it's representative, it has no resonance. I mean, it's good in a sense that if it works it won't pluck at the sleeve, but then now they should a good poem pluck at the sleeve in the wrong way. And we're back to Keats here, aren't we? Sure. Not having those sort of intentions on the reader. But I suppose I would characterise the difference as breathing space, resonance, and to a certain extent opening out from the particular into something which may have a, a broader perspective. So using the particular as a prism to look at a universal... Can be. <laughs> you said warily. Um, this is Blake, of course, isn't it? Yes. Heaven in a wild flower and the world in a grain of sand. There's actually a line from in yeah. your poem, one of your early poems, on Porlock Beach. Oh, yes. A drowning desire to sense the single in calm collectives, which seems to speak to me, to speak to this question a little bit. Looking at groups or entities and, and yet seeing the individual in that and finding a way to connect to that. Yes, I think that is important to me. It's to a certain extent born of um, a desire for wholeness. On one level, I remember going to Glastonbury for the first time and looking at the suggestiveness of the absent sections of the arch, which the imagination completes. And I suppose that's part of the answer to the difference between description and um, something more resonant, that the imagination gets to work on absence as well as presence, and that has its own excitements. I mean, it, it just is an astonishing faculty, the, the imagination, and seemingly endless. I mean, I think, I don't know whether you find this, are you aware of your creative energy, as it were, coming and going? Mm. Is it periodic? Yes, I will often have a, a splurge, and, and suddenly a, a number of things get written. Yes. It feels... I know at the time it isn't as easy as when it, I look yes. back on it, it feels. Yes. But it, there's a sense of, even though the work is hard in the moment, I know what to do next. 
So it may be that there'll be some hours of wrestling with something, but I, the wrestling is to some purpose. Yes. Whereas I've done plenty of wrestling that leads to nothing tangible at the end yes. of it, yes. in non-creative stretches. Yes, the, the um, cutting room floor has yes. quite a lot of material on it. Absolutely. But, um, but that's good too, isn't it? I mean, I think so, yeah. yeah. Often, mean, often it's working through ideas that may later reappear in another form. Yes. I mean, don't you, don't you think, Anne, that, that all, all writers, I mean, here's a sweeping generalisation, <laughs> but we all more or less have our particular obsessions, concerns, themes that we come back and back to. Do you yes. find that? Yes. It's only now, at this stage, that I'm starting to see that in my own work, because I, I suppose I'm building up a, enough things to look back on. But certainly in other writers' work, you can see that. It's the interesting the flip side of that, I suppose, and I think it particularly, I don't know how it is for poets, but it certainly is a, a problem for fiction writers, is that you you get pigeonholed and required to yes. write the same thing yes. over and over again. Yes. And and that, for me, that, that has caused some real periods of frustration and blockage, actually, because I feel really mm. disinclined to do that. So it's that balance between being free to return to certain concerns, but not being required to reproduce yes. the same yes, thing. Yes, I think, yes, interesting. I mean, uh, of course, our freedom is circumscribed not only by time, but by marketing departments. Mm, absolutely. And um, it's, it's true, isn't it, that, I mean, it's this wretched business of people being treated as brands. Mm. I mean, it's one thing that I think poets on the whole are saved because it's so uncommercial, mm. except for very few people. And that does bestow freedom of a kind. Mm. Although you may end up doing as many bits and pieces jobs as you describe in your biography on your website. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I suppose at the end of it all, what I most want to emphasise is just the sheer the feeling, of, feeling of real excitement and delight at sometimes mm. being able to do this thing. Mm. And in all its phases, some of them much more glamorous than others and some gruelling and some cul-de-sac I mean for all that it's just it feels extraordinary to have been able to to do that I mean you were talking about this terrible trail of 40 years behind me I mean I was a very late starter we live in an age which on the whole encourages people to become a brand when they're very young the first thing I attempted to get published was when I was uh, I don't know 28 29 I sent in four poems to the New Statesman and it was either Anthony Thwaite or James Fenton, because I think they were together at the New Statesman. And the two poems were seen by a publisher who said, got any more? And that became the first book. But the first book didn't go through any real critical filters. And I don't think particularly well of it. But, you know, as in so many other things in life, I don't think you can avoid any of the steps in the dance. No. Yeah, um, they all perhaps have a con contribution to make. And maybe that links up with what you were saying about the differences in the early work to the late work. Mm. But there are continuities too. He mm. said defiantly, we've talked a bit about people's obsessions. I mean, if I said to you, what do you think are your uh, obsessive themes insofar as you, I mean, you might not agree with that, but would you have an answer to that? I often like to try and tell stories about people who you would cross the street to avoid and make people care about those people or feel that they understand how that person's got to that situation. That was certainly with Beside Myself, the main character in that. I thought if I saw her coming towards me on the street, I would be probably a bit frightened. And, and I think she's the sort of person that a lot of people would feel frightened meeting or, or make judgments about. And in fact, yeah. one of the scenes that 
means a lot to me in the novelist where she's in a bank and uh, a number of other judgmental comments are made to her by people stand by bystanders who witness her having a sort of meltdown. I think for me storytelling and imagining your way into someone else's experience is a humane exercise in trying to encourage fellow feeling. You do similar things though in, in a number of your poems because I mean I'm thinking one that comes to mind again it's what from the early poems but um, and you have to forgive me because I can't remember the title but it's the story of a child who drowns in yes, ponds, yes, yes. and you describe yes. it from the child's viewpoint, yeah. the building up to this event, and then it happens. And it's never said in so many words exactly what happens, but we know because of the way you've prepared it. And we've seen it through that child, through that child's eye, how this event is almost irresistible. It's almost, it's very interesting. So you do exactly the same thing in that <laughs> sense. Yeah, um, well, you, you're making me feel also that, yes, you're right, it's a matter of of perspectives. But I wanted to go back to childhood. Really, the, the poem you're talking about is all summed up in that word no. It's the great no, isn't yes. it, of, of the child growing up and defying the parents. But it's interesting to me, I'm fascinated by childhood, as mm. I think I was talking about child refugees earlier. It's very interesting that many languages have two words, childish and childlike, mm. kindlich, kindish. Yeah. One is a compliment, the other isn't. And I suppose the most direct poem in that vein I've written Again, we talked earlier about how long it might take to digest things and before writing about them. This is a poem I wrote 45 years after the experience that it evolves from. Um, when I was about five, I was sent away from home by my mother and her then boyfriend because I inconveniently had recurring nightmares that woke them up. And I was sent to this home. It's somewhere near here, near Exeter. He looked around as it might uh, be next door, but it's somewhere in the country near here. And when I wrote about it, just as you were saying with the other poem, I decided I would write with the full rhymes and the directness and the vocabulary of a small child. And that was the only way to tackle it. But it was very odd because suddenly there I was back in the present of this home where they tripped you. They had a big rocking horse in the hall and you were invited to ride it. And then, of course, your parents rode away again as the poem says mm, yes. um, so it's 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 like a malign little fairy tale and, and uh, what's neat at the end of that poem yeah. actually is that you imply or you make us feel that the memory of the rocking horse and the parents riding away replaces the recurrent nightmare that you were yes. sent to get rid of yes that's right it does but at the same time of course it remains a haunting but 45 years on when I wrote this I thought well I'd better show this to my mother so I did, and she was a very kind, cheerful person. But in this case, without any malign intention, she really said, yeah, I expect you feel better for that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's conspicuous. I mean, what, again, one of the points, it seems to me, of, of um, not necessarily that long a time lapse, but a time lapse between an emotionally powerful and some ways dislocating experience and writing about it is that you do approach it not as therapy mm. but as art and you have a in that sense a palpable design upon the reader mm, yes <laughs> emotion recollected in tranquility i suppose is yes worth yes yeah it's interesting that childhood is something that you're so gripped by and you can mm. tell that actually in a way because your memoir sift um, an account of your childhood in exeter it's a beautifully compelling and evocative book what I found really interesting reading it, I and mean, it was so, so many of the details I enjoyed so much, and, and it was so funny as well, really funny. 
But what I found very interesting was that it describes what feels like a very urban childhood. And yet nature is such a, a huge theme in certainly your early poetry. So most of, well, a lot of the early poems are set in the natural world in different ways, a trout hatchery, a lake, the beach. The beach recurs a huge amount, the sea. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I was just wondering about that. How does that work? Yeah, well, first, it's not just um, the early poems. Um, a lot of the later poems are about mm, that's true as uh, well. Yeah. the smoke tree in yes. my garden. They're about individual plants and flowers. And to a certain extent, these mirror, without consciously setting out to do so, my father's uh, preoccupations. He was a painter, and uh, I only ever saw him about a dozen times. Um, Once walking on his hands. Once indeed, with the the coins falling out of his pockets, yeah. (laughs) But we never talked about anything to do with writing or painting, very sadly, I think now. But of course, by circumstance, we both ended up in a household of three, he with my half-sister and his second wife, I with my twin and mother. And so, on the very rare occasions we met, we fell on each other's necks and went drinking or chatting. But he's always been a, a commanding absence. And the parabola of his work is that his best work, I think, was done in the 30s when he and my mother were travelling in Europe and they spent a lot of time on the Adriatic coast and settled in Spain and then had to leave because of the Civil War. And his later work homes more and more to plants and flowers and he's always obsessed by particular things like sisal. A lot of his paintings are these giant, rather threatening sisal plants and so on. And, of course... Uh, I share with him a love of the sea. But, yes, I've never... I mean, I'm a Londoner by birth, and perhaps when I was a small child, I didn't like living in Exeter. I couldn't wait to get back to London because that, after all, was where theatre matinees happened and grandparents and tea from thick china pots in the interval of the pantomime and so on. But when it came to bringing up children of my own, when we came back from Kenya, the southwest just seemed wonderful. But I'm not conscious particularly of being urban or rural. I would say that uh, (laughs) the perhaps dominant third term is something you've already mentioned, which is the shore, the sea. I mean, my idea of heaven is being in a small sailing boat. And also the sea just is an extraordinary presence, an extraordinary thing in itself. It's protean, it's inconstant, endlessly fascinating. And of course that too has now acquired a rather grimmer dimension in terms of what we've done to the sea and the shore and the seabed and its creatures. So I suppose if I were asked to put in order of preference sea, countryside, city, that in fact would be the order. Hmm. Poetry in recent years has been going through what feels like quite a renaissance actually, I think. It's become cool again. Um, A new generation seems to have discovered it and all sorts of things are happening with social media platforms, etc, etc. Over the course of your career you must have seen it wax and wane at various points. How do you feel about the House of Poetry at the moment? What would you like to see in years to come? You're right about the waxing and waning. In fact, a Renaissance is declared on the whole between once every five or ten years. <laughs> and uh, that's fine in the sense that it gives a good spark and ignition to a new generation. And I think that's entirely good. And the other huge change, of course, is that it's no longer English poetry, it's poetry in English. And the, all the Englishes that we have learned to accommodate. I mean, I think one of the saddest things about poetry, as it used to be, was it was said that, I mean, it's the famous Adrian Mitchell dictum, isn't there? Um, 
most people ignore poetry because poetry ignores most people. And it was also said that rather like antique dealers, you know, 95% of the activity was between traders and didn't <laughs> involve the general public. But it's a very interesting question. I mean, there was a time when you wondered whether poetry had retreated into the difficult and obscure and whether this wasn't essentially defensive and a loss of nerve. On the other hand, that argument about the difficulty of poetry being desirable or not desirable, again, is endless. And my feeling is, it's a great shame, particularly in the miniverse of poetry, it's a great shame that people are so factional. There's surely room. There are many mansions in the House of Poetry, and there's room for everything. There's wonderful development of all the poetry and rapping and so on and slams and all the rest. But then some of the practitioners of those kinds of poetry are disappointed when critics get at them if they're published on the page and they look a bit thin. Of course they do. Or they don't look right. Of course not, because they're not operating in their home medium. And I think, you know, we should rejoice at them all. Mm. And so, um, going to the second part of your question, I think it's got to be the best that you can manage of its kind. I mean, here's a moralising word. It's got to have integrity. And I, I think I mean that in its original sense of wholeness. A good poet always takes you into a world, a whole world. And I think that is beyond price. Time will judge whether you had an important contribution to make. Most writers at their death are celebrated, then ignored. Very few are taken up again. Some, rather like Mendelssohn rediscovering Bach, suddenly come to light and are celebrated. But they're all, at best, invigorating, joyous signs of human imaginative endeavour. That was Lawrence Sale in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Lawrence on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 401, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 402, Lucy Flannery owns up to an obsession with stationery, and Alexandra Benedict shares how she brings the senses into writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.